0: How you doing instagram it's big time aaron and here's my thought of the day men rise from one ambition to another first they seek to secure themselves against attack and then they attack others ain't nothing but an old school way anyway i'm here with my good friend big time olivia
1: what's up everybody As many of you know, my great-times-a-thousand grandfather's second cousin's former roommate's brother's wife moved to the Bronx from Italy in 1352. As a proud Italian-American, I take my heritage very seriously. Very
0: seriously.
1: And that's why today, on this episode of the Weird Medieval Guys podcast, we are going to go back in time to medieval Italy. Take it easy. The tea is Gabagool. <laughs> <laughs> all, now brimming wine in lordly cups, eagles shine before
2: each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast.
1: Back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. I'm Olivia, and this is Aaron, an old school Brooklynite who runs a bodega down on the corner. Can I just say I'm so proud of you? <laughs> this is your first stupid voice that you've done. I do my best. You've come so far. Well, I just my the trick to a good New York voice oh, go, is I just imitate my grandmother. <laughs> You know, when I was a child, I thought she just talked like that. I didn't realize it was an accent that came from somewhere. So when you met the second New Yorker, you were like, do you know my gram? Yeah, literally. Anyways, and as you may have gathered from that meticulously crafted opening, today we are going to be talking about Italy. Bella Italia. Absolutely, and... A couple a couple podcasts ago, we did an episode about medieval humor and medieval jokes and medieval gestures, mm-hmm. and we shared some of our favorite jokes about Florence. Now Florence was a favorite comedic subject in the Middle Ages. The
0: Florida of the Middle Ages.
1: Absolutely. Florence and... man. <laughs> And um and we had a few comments. Some of them were asking us for more Florence jokes, some of them were asking why some Florence of us were asking for fewer Florence jokes. <laughs> some of them were asking why medieval people found Florence and Florentines so funny. And so today on the podcast we're going to dig into Florence and medieval Florence and what made Florence such an interesting place that it became so um, such a subject of jokes and also just such a nexus of the medieval world especially the late medieval world
0: yeah because Florence is one of those one of those places in in this era that sort of not only at the, not only now is like a huge topic study. I mean there's a whole field of history that's dedicated to the study of Florence in this one very specific time window um like people dedicate their entire lives to going to these Dusty libraries in Italy to like you know leaf through wills and try and figure out what that tells you about like family structure in thirteenth century Florence, and that's your whole life can be that. But but also Florence was a was a place that lived large in the imaginations not only of people in the in the modern era but also at the time. It's just one of those sort of it has this almost sort of mythic status, and I think that's well deserved because it's, it's an incredibly complex and incredibly interesting society. So we're going to get into why. People are obsessed with this goddamn town. I should say as well that uh, we're trying something a bit new here at Weird Medieval Guys Podcast for our 10th episode. This is the first of a sort of very intermittent, very unofficial series that we'll be doing about the great cities of the medieval world. And if you can't tell where that's going, you haven't been listening to this show long enough. (laughs)
1: And if you have any cities in um, as well, I should say, that you would like us to cover in the Middle Ages, then why not drop us a comment in the Spotify review box and um, we'll consider your suggestions. In yes, ab-
0: absolutely we will. And you better suggest some stuff, because if you don't, I'm going to make us do an episode about Norwich.
1: I'm going to make us do an episode about Hull. Oh. Oof. Yeah, that's right.
0: So please save me from that. Yeah. <laughs> no, Hull people, you're all right.
1: Yeah. Keep telling them that. If you haven't listened to our episode on medieval jesters, or um,
0: or just forgot because it was just, a month ago,
1: or just forgot, then you might be asking, wait, what kinds of medieval jokes about Florence? Well, here are a couple. These are all from, I should mention, um, the Facetiae, which is an Italian joke anthology from the late 15th century. So, here we go. I knew an old Florentine bishop who had lost some of his teeth and complained of others being so loose that he was afraid they would soon fall out. Never fear, said one of his friends, they won't fall. And why not, inquired the bishop. His friend replied... Because my testicles have been hanging loose for the last 40 years, as if they were going to fall off. And yet, there they are still.
0: (laughs) That got a laugh out of me.
1: You know, here's another good one.
0: Okay, hit me, hit me, hit me.
1: In Florence, I like that, like, these could just be jokes about anyone, but they're specifically people from Florence. In Florence, a young woman, somewhat of a simpleton, was on the point of delivering a baby. She had long been enduring acute pain, and the midwife, candle in hand, inspected her secret area Oof. in order to ascertain if the child was coming. Look on the other side, said the poor creature. My husband has sometimes taken that road. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, um, this is one about Tivoli, actually, not about Florence, but I just wanted to share this one with you guys as well. Ah, uh, they don't mind. The good people of Tivoli were once harangued by an imprudent monk who thundered in a long, furious speech against the sin of adultery. Among other things, he declared that violation of the sanctity of wedlock was a crime of such grave character that he would rather lie with ten virgins than one married woman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those
0: are brilliant. I mean, obviously, those stand the test of time.
1: Yes. But I think
0: it's worth asking... Why Florence? Because you mentioned, yeah, these could kind of be jokes about anybody anywhere. Yeah. So why is Florence looming so large in people's brains?
1: Well, I think a lot of it is to do with the ubiquity of Florence and how well-known Florence was, how big Mm -hmm. of a player it was in the late medieval social and political and economical landscape.
0: Yeah, I mean, so Florence was one of... Florence grows over the course of the Middle Ages from being a pretty kind of backwater old Roman town into being one of the largest cities in Europe at the time. And we'll get into why that happens in excruciating detail later. But the other thing, the other thing that's important about Florence is that it is an incredibly important cultural center. Many people argue that it is the site where the Renaissance kicks off. Dun, 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 dun. Woo, everyone the Renaissance. loves the
1: Renaissance.
2: The
0: most important thing that's ever happened in the history of anything ever.
1: The the part of history when people became smart and interested in the arts again. <sighs> as, as, as we know, <laughs> as we've discussed many a time. So, okay. So, let's let let's let's peel
0: back what the Renaissance is and what it isn't. The Renaissance as sort of colloquially defined, you might say, uh, is very confusing because it's, it's, it's used as both a self-conscious intellectual movement and also a period of history. So the, as a period of history it's usually sort of understood to have started in the at the end of the, ooh, really I guess at the end of the 14th century and swung all the way into the 17th. Um, it was defined in this narrative by a rediscovery and reinterest in the classical world, by a rise in secular culture and, and by distinctive changes in uh, the artistic traditions of the time.
1: Well, yeah, so we won't get into sort of why exactly medieval art looks the way it does, but when a lot of people... We have a people, podcast about that. We do. It's actually one of our... It is our first podcast episode, yes. is it not?
0: So just scroll down.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, and then come back to this one. <laughs> exactly. Stop, pause, scroll down, listen, and then pick up right here. Um, so when a lot of people see medieval art, a lot of people today often their first impression and the first response they have to the artwork is, well, why doesn't it look realistic? Mm -hmm. Why isn't it anatomically accurate? And also why um, you know, in terms of the human subjects, and also why do many of the animal subjects look a bit strange, and why is there a seeming lack of attention to things like perspective and scale that make an entire scene look more realistic?
0: And might I add there's there's another trend, which is the uh, anachronistic depictions of the pre-medieval classical past. So you have, like, I don't know, like, Caesar standing next to a pope or whatever. Exactly. Something that would have never happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because Christianity did not exist.
1: Wearing a big floppy hat and a doublet. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, pointy shoes.
0: Saying, I love Jesus. Yes! Me
1: too, Caesar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, as as you quite rightly say, people look at this and they go, why... Is medieval art so weird? People do that in the comments section of your Twitter account. Yes. Uh, every goddamn day. With
1: great gusto. With
0: great gusto. Um, and they. this is usually... The, the weirdness of medieval art is often contrasted with the trends that you see... In the quote-unquote Renaissance period, you see a move towards less stylized depictions of the human form and of nature. You see a you see a move towards more depictions of sort of not explicitly religious themes. You see um, you, you see depictions of the classical past and events from classical mythology depicted in a non-Christian way. So basically the Renaissance kills the weird medieval guy.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Now, as ever in history, that's quite an oversimplified sort of... That's that's painting a very broad brush about the Renaissance, and and in many ways, I think, overstating the levels of difference that you see. Absolutely.
1: I think especially a lot of people also ascribe... a, A lot of people also assume that these... Changes in artistic style um, corresponded to a change in overarching sort of philosophy as well. So, oftentimes, what people think is that medieval people were wholly disinterested in the classical worlds and the ancient worlds. Not
0: true. (laughs) (laughs) We spent an hour and a half on that. And
1: that people became more interested in these things again. They sort of just magically rediscovered them at the end of the Middle Ages and decided to become interested in. Greek and Roman philosophy again. So, as we have said before, that's absolutely not true. No. Medieval people loved ancient philosophy; um, they
0: were at least as obsessed with it as people in the in the early modern period. I mean, yeah, I mean, we have a whole episode about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's it is the single most important cultural reference point, other than the Bible, in the medieval world. There's no there's no there's no way around that. What does happen at the sort of tail end of the, especially at the tail end of, of, of the 15th century, is not that the, the, the classical past is sort of rediscovered, but more that there is a kind of, there is a bit of an intellectual reframing of the classical past. So, what the very important thing that happens at the end of the 15th century is that a lot of, there, there are a lot of works that are rediscovered, mostly from the Hellenistic period, so the Greeks, Rather than the Romans. And for, so to, to take the classic example, in the pre-renaissance medieval world, there was only one scrap of one parchment by Plato, right? And then all of a sudden, um, by the end of, by the end of the 15th century, there are quite a few works circulating around around Europe and being copied everywhere by people who are like, "This Plato guy is amazing. <laughs> this is crazy. The reason why those works get quote unquote, rediscovered, is because in the intervening period between uh the fall of the roman empire and um and the renaissance um scholars in uh in the arab world and in the byzantine empire have been studiously studying them and uh and translating them but not really translating them to anything other than greek and arabic
1: <laughs>
0: and so when you have at the end of the 15th century the an influx of um of byzantine scholars fleeing the collapsing roman empire and you have the, gla- the gradual sort of receding of the Arab influence in Europe that leave- who leave behind a whole lot of texts and whole libraries um, of works that have, been tra- that have been very studiously translated into Arabic and studied for centuries, the combination of those two things leads to significant amounts of material that wasn't available before suddenly being available to Latinate audiences.
1: Yeah, exactly, because even though certain authors like Plato weren't widely read in the Middle Ages, there were certainly classical authors who they were very, very interested in and who mm-hmm. were frequently read, like Boethius and Aristotle and Julius oh, they Caesar's Aristotle. works. They loved Boethius. He invented the Wheel of Fortune. Um, he did. He was medieval Alex, well, he was classical Alex Trebek. Boethius <laughs> was cool. He was the first guy to be like, what if fortune... Was not an abstract concept But a really hot lady What if? And I respect him for that Yeah, I You know, now we have lady luck
0: I think more abstract concepts should be hot babes Yeah,
1: me too (laughs) And of course, the idea that the Renaissance was the first time that people I mean, okay, you know what? Let's let's do the stupidest thing possible. Let's do dig it. into what the word Renaissance means. Oh God! <laughs> yes, it means renaissance. So the idea we have 500 years of Florence to get through. <laughs> so the idea is, you know, that there was this um, sort of, you know, golden age of Greek and Roman um, philosophy and Greek and Roman output, and that it, this was brought back in the Renaissance. Of course, this is a term that's been applied post hoc to. The period that we know as the Renaissance.
0: I'd actually, I'd actually go a little bit further. I would say that it's not just something that people have applied in retrospect, but it was, it is essentially the way that the scholars in this period thought about themselves. The Renaissance describes their self-concept rather than, um, rather than, uh, r- rather than an actual neutral term. It's basically propaganda for the 15th century.
1: And it also falsely assumes that this is the first time that there was an interest in realigning art and culture with the ancient world. This is not the case at all. So notably, for instance, the Carolingian Renaissance in around the 9th century was a massive revival of Greek and Roman culture. I mean, it's worth also mentioning that the dominant style of art for the first part for most of the Middle Ages until Gothic art and architecture, which started around the, the 12th um, or 11th century, was called Romanesque. Mm-hmm. So everyone was making art that essentially imitated Roman art in one way or another. Everyone is, of course, a bit of an overstatement. but um, And so so the Carolingian Renaissance, in which, um, what's his name, Charles Magnus, Big, big Chuck, Um Charlemagne, <laughs> Yeah, thanks for letting me flounder with that one.
0: That was, I was enjoying where, see where you were going.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, so Charlemagne um, basically, as well, consciously tried to revive ancient Greek and Roman art styles and philosophy. And if you look at art, not just from that specific time period, but from a lot of, The earlier Middle Ages and a lot of art from Italy in general throughout the Middle Ages, you actually see that there was never a full abandonment of some of these Greek and Roman principles of art such as anatomy and greater Mm -hmm. attention to historical accuracy. So for instance, medieval Italy, there's actually lots of art from all over the Middle Ages where people are drawing people in togas and people have very like naturalistic poses and lighting and, you know, anatomy and perspective is very, very interesting.
0: And it's not as if, um, on, on the flip side of that, it's not as if people in the, uh, in the Renaissance period were above anachronism either. Exactly. As we talked about in our, uh, in our episode where we talked about uh, what the medieval world thought about the classical world, we did not make the comparison point. Of Shakespeare plays. Yes. Which are wildly anachronistic in terms of the way that they sort of presented dress. People were parading around in, like, big floppy hats with the yeah, ostrich feathers. Definitely. Um, pretending to be Romans.
1: Yeah, and it's and funnily enough, the ancient peoples were not above these anachronisms either. And a lot of those are very pervasive even today. Because if you think of, for instance, Achilles, what do you think of? His you heel. Think Yes, definitely. And after that, you think of his helmet, right? Yes. Which is, um, I forget what it's called, a hoplite or something. I don't Uh know anything about classical history. That... Is a helmet from the time period when Achilles' story was written? Achilles was a oh, shit. Mycenaean. Myc Mycena- I don't know anything. Mycenae- Mycenaean. He was a Mycenaean. Okay, listen. My classical. My lack of classical historical knowledge is going to come in hot for a few minutes, but just ignore it. Um, he was a My. He was you know in the story. A One Mycenaean of those guys. <laughs> Greek, you know, who lived hundreds of years before anyone made those funny helmets with the with the brooms on top. And he would have worn a comparatively, I think, to us, somewhat goofy-looking, um, rather conical helmet that was covered in boar tusks. Um, yes. And, and, that would have looked rad. And it's super badass, but because we think of the hoplite as the quintessential Greek soldier, we can't imagine Achilles and a lot of other classical Greek figures as wearing anything but... This sort of very typical helmet um, yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll link some pictures Of Mycenaean helmets Because they are so cool
0: So there you go The Renaissance was more of a Change in emphasis yeah. And we we, we we have to tread very carefully when we talk about it Because it's very easy to fall Into the trap of assuming that The way that people thought about Themselves and their own place In history Was actually accurate so yes. you'll see a lot of people in this period writing about it. we've just rediscovered the classical past when, as we've talked about extensively, the classical past was living with the medieval past, with the medieval world for the entirety of the medieval period.
1: Not to drag this on too much, but I think that we think of things like um, anatomy and perspective and sort of, you know, scale as being the baseline default state for art. artists are generally trying to be as accurate to real life as possible, and there must be an explanation when they're not. So we need to explain why they would deviate from that. But it's also, I think, worth noting... It's because they hate
0: beauty. Yes. And they want to depress the human soul. (laughs)
1: We'll get into that. Exactly. But I think if you look back at art such as, you know, not just medieval art, but also classical Greek and Roman art, things like paintings... As sort of single entities, just having a painting in a frame, that's actually not a very ubiquitous thing until we get to the so-called Renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of art forms are frescoes and altar pieces and religious artwork and sculptures, and they're often um, they're often sort of very heavily iconographic. And we're not necessarily always criticizing them as much as we might criticize a painting or something else that looks anatomically inaccurate or otherwise inaccurate.
0: So that's the Renaissance. Not exactly what you think it is, but still pretty important. And an inter- a super interesting uh, period in history.
2: Is who on
0: course Florence was in many ways the sort of the the breeding ground for a lot of these ideas so so many of the iconic renaissance characters whether they're writing literature or doing big paintings either come from Florence or work in Florence for significant periods of their of their professional lives.
1: People like um, Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck
0: you. Donatello, Don- Michelangelo.
1: Who's Donatello? She the sounds of- hot.
0: Oh my god! I was about I was about to make a Ninja Turtle oh, joke. Sorry, and Do you, want you to- just no. You know what? Do, Do fuck want to take you. It from the, the top? Moment, no, I'm I, sorry. I don't. I don't. The moment's passed. This is all staying in. This is, so you people can see what I have to deal
1: with. Wow, I'm such a scoundrel. <laughs> <laughs> that was malevolent. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, Boccaccio.
0: Boccaccio. Oh my God, Boccaccio. His *Decameron*, which is both really good and also interminable.
1: You might remember it as the source of Parmesan Mountain. Oh yes. Yes, Dante,
0: and his bi- and his uh, buddy Petrarch. Yes. Fun fact about Petrarch, uh, who was a, who was a Florentine scholar. Uh, he was one of these people who was obsessed with Rome. He says fa- he famously said. Uh, What else is all history but the praise of Rome? He even wrote letters to dead authors like Cicero, people who've been dead for thousands of years, and he says that he addressed them with a familiarity springing from my sympathy with his genius. (laughs) This guy was writing fan... Sorry, this guy was writing fan mail to Cicero.
1: Did you almost say fan fiction? I
0: did almost write Cicero fanfic. (laughs) Quickly pull up AO3 to see if that exists Yes Please don't
1: Oh my god
0: So those, those those are the few of the great men of the Florentine Renaissance But I think we have a responsibility on Weird Medieval Guys To tell a bit more of an interesting story Than just the lives of a couple of very, admittedly very clever And very successful and very accomplished artists So I think what would be useful to do for the rest of this episode is to dive into the history of Florence as a city and explain why exactly it was the perfect petri dish for the intellectual developments and the cultural developments that would spread like wildfire across Europe.
1: Yes, I agree. (laughs) Never
2: in
0: Talk about Florence itself. I think we need to first of all understand uh, the political context of medieval Italy, because medieval Italy is, for want of a slightly less uh, maudlin comparison, it's a bit like the sort of Eastern Europe of uh, of of the Middle Ages, because it is sandwiched between two massively powerful power blocks. Far to the north, in the German lands, you have the Holy Roman Emperor. The primus inter pares of the Christian world, the first among equals, and the ruler of the mightiest state. Italy was nominally under the sovereignty of the Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy, one of the Holy Roman Emperor's titles was King of Italy, but the reality was far more complex. Italy uh, is far away from Germany, <laughs> and it's over some mountains. You may have heard of them called the Alps. <laughs> The Toblerones. Yes, um, and not only is it far away from the center of power in the Empire, but there's also a rival to the imperial throne—Big Daddy Pope himself. So Rome is the is the is the beating heart of the Latin Christian world. It is the center not only. It is not only the spiritual center, the most important religious site in the Christian world but it's also the center of the church bureaucracy. And as we've explored in other episodes most notably our divorce episode, the bureau- the bureaucracy of the church is by the really by the high middle ages an incredibly powerful institution. It reached into every bedroom in Christendom. Wow. Regulating moral behavior Regulate, regula- regulating what kings could do The The Pope could write a fucking pope, papal bull To excommunicate a king it yeah. would fuck his entire country For a decade
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: And not only that, but the papacy Is the center of a huge financial empire Because, of course The church demands tithes And the bankers at the papal court get to control where that money goes. So the Pope can build cities, he can raise armies. He's an incredibly powerful person. And that's particularly problematic for the Holy Roman Emperor for two reasons. So first of all, the Holy Roman Emperor was crowned by the Pope, which meant that he was neither holy nor Roman without papal approval. And, to make matters worse, he was also elected from, by a different electorate, from the Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy Roman Emperor is of course elected by the various, you know, kings and princes of the Empire. The Pope is elected by the Cardinals, as as he is to this day. So that means that you have an independent power center that's able to project influence all over the continent, but especially in its own backyard, which is already a really hard area for you to control. And so these two great powers are sort of eyeing each other enviously over the Alps, sort of staring, at, staring each other down and constantly getting into scrapes. They are constantly feuding. They are having controversies cap- with a capital C. <laughs> they have wars, often about who gets to appoint bishops, for example. So who gets to control, you know, ca- can the monarchy control the religious institutions in their own country? The answer is often no. Because of that, northern Italy is a bit of a no man's land between these two great powers. And what that means is neither of them can a neither of them can afford to let the other one become too dominant in the region, but also no independent power center apart from those two powers can be allowed to emerge in that region apart from the empire and the pope. All right? Following so far? Mhm. It's going to get more complicated. Good. So what you get instead are cities, the communes. These are you know, very small-scale political units of a city and then its immediate countryside, the contado, um, that, that it controls. And these cities, each of them, have their own incredibly complicated, constantly evolving relationship with the empire, with the pope, and with each other. And these communes are places that you will have heard of. Places like Milan, Venice, Venice, Genoa, and the biggest and sexiest of them all...
1: Florence.
0: Florence.
1: Firenze.
0: That's right, that is what it's called. You really are embracing your Italian heritage.
1: I have to say Florence, best Duomo in Italy. Oh, controversial. I love the green. I've always been a big fan of uh, Torino. Oh, I haven't actually been to that one. I was hoping you weren't going to say Milan, because I think like, you're a total cuck if you think Milan has the best duomo.
0: There's another side effect, though, of this political fracturing that you see within each one of these communes, though. The politics of each one of those communes is determined by what side of that geopolitical fault line you think your city should fall on. And in every single city in Italy, pretty much... You two parties were formed. The Guelphs, who supported the papacy, and the Ghibellines, who supported the empire. And some, you know, the relative strength of each one of those parties uh, varied depending on the city. Some cities were reliably Guelph, some cities were reliably Ghibelline, and some, like Florence, sort of fluctuated wildly year by year. Uh, based on who was in power at any given time and uh, what was in the best interests of the city
1: Americans will know these as swing states
0: <laughs> Florence, the Pennsylvania of yes! uh, of medieval of medieval Italy. Never say- That's the world in which Florentines find themselves in the Middle Ages. This incredibly chaotic, incredibly confusing world of constantly shifting alliances between these Italian city-states and the papacy and the empire. But that's, so that's the background. Let's talk about Florence itself. Because Florence in the Middle Ages is all about one thing. There's one engine that runs the Florentine economy. Would you like to tell them what it is? Lana. Lana, your favorite, your favorite thing in the world, judging by the contents of your living room.
1: Wool. Yes, I do have <laughs> several kilograms of fleece in my living room right now. I am
0: surrounded by wool. If just, if you want to imagine what this room is like, there's just like big piles of wool everywhere. Some of it's, some of it's being spun right now. Some, some of it's it...
1: been turned into garments. Yeah, some, some of it's... it's been dyed. Some of it is just strewn in bits <laughs> around the place.
0: It's a wool lover's paradise. It's like a body horror movie for a sheep.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You turned my hair into a shirt? Yeah, definitely. So, wool is hugely important as um the the fiber that makes the clothing that people wear. Wool is... Both a- for normal
0: people and for the rich.
1: Yes, I'm because saying. there's varying grades of wool. You can have really crap wool, which is wool... Um, where the, the fibers of the wool themselves are very coarse, or you can have very nice wool. Wool, importantly as well, is a really high margin thing to, to produce and sell yeah. for the people who own the sheep, okay? Right. So most of the wool that's being processed in Florence is coming in from England, at least in the beginning. Uh-huh. And so sheep, they're pretty hardy creatures, Right, they don't need a lot. They don't demand a lot from no. their owners. They're pretty chill. They're pretty chill. Um, you can have a lot of them. They just eat grass. They grow the wool without really you needing to do anything, <laughs> which is nice. So just, unlike, don't,
0: just don't lose them.
1: Yeah, unlike unlike crops, you know, um, there's there's a, a less there's a less chance of your sheep sort of just dying or getting a fungus. Um, and wool is also really economical to pack and ship. So mm. we were talking about. Um, in our Doritos episode about how certain things, like salt, um, despite not being something that was really rare, in places where you couldn't ship it, it was stupidly expensive because you're basically just shipping rocks. Um, So you can actually pack in quite a few kilos of wool, it compresses very easily, it actually compresses much more easily than, for instance, um, spun thread. Or fabric or garments, and so in the beginning, um, sort of it, around the high middle ages, it was very economical for these English people, um, these sheep owners, to just shear their sheep and then without doing anything else, just pack up all of that wool and sell it to merchants who would bring it to Italy. Yes, yeah, so what you, so saw you what with what the wool had was,
0: was a continent wide supply chain. Where um, what you saw with the wool trade was in, uh, a continent-wide sort of supply usually in the Low chain Countries, where like, um, the like wool would be brought to merchants in um, in sort of and Antwerp. usually in the Low Countries, and uh, so like and then those merchants like would bring a lot of that wool um, all the way to, Italy and, uh, and to and and then Florence those merchants would bring and Florence by being on the end of that supply chain was in a very advantageous position.
1: Yeah, because even though even though the people who are selling the wool are making a tidy profit, they're not selling it for um, a stupid amount of money, and importantly, when you buy the wool, by turning it, surely by turning it into fabric, you are raising the value of those materials exponentially.
0: Well, because it's an incredibly labor intensive process as well, you know.
1: Exactly. And so but this is the important thing, is once you have the raw materials, in terms of the wool, you need dye as well at the end. Um, once you have the raw materials, the amount of money you can make off of those raw materials, the net profit, the profit margin, is determined by how cheaply you can process that wool into nice fabric. Uh-huh. And- Surprise,
0: bitch. This is an economics episode. Yep. Settle in. We reeled you in with jokes. And now we're doing profit margins and production lines.
1: Exactly. So before we get into the nitty gritty of wool production, which of course I'm just dying. I promise
0: this is interesting. Okay, right.
1: No, no, no. This is
0: this is all going somewhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um and so and so in Florence you had a lot of people employed in the wool industry. Yep.
0: It was one it was probably Aside from agriculture, the biggest uh, the biggest employer in the Commune of Florence. And there were lots of different jobs that needed to be done in the wool production process. Because, it's, like I say, it's an incredibly complex and labor-intensive process.
1: Um, so yeah, so steps that are involved. Okay, once you have the wool, you're getting this raw wool. It's basically sort of a greasy pile of, like, loose... Dreadlocks. No, sheep are seriously oily, right? I know. They are covered in oil.
0: I've worked on a farm. Don't at me. So
1: you get this giant pile of dreadlocks, basically, sheep dreadlocks. And first you need to just dig your hands in and start sorting them, start picking out some of the material and detangling this mass of fibers into something that's a bit less gross. Mm. Um, And after that, it's time to card your wool. Um, So this is, you basically take like big combs and you comb out the wool, into a sort of even mass, something that basically, um, and, and sort of make sure the fibers are aligned and detangled so that they can be spun, uh-huh. and then you can spin it, put it on a loom after that, and weave it into fabric, um, and then there's, after that actually, there's a huge process. You would think maybe, oh, once you have the fabric, that's done. But there's a huge process of like different things you have to do. So often, like the fabric will be a bit lumpy. So you have to like comb it and trim it and do all these different things to it. This is just a hugely labor intensive process. So I read a paper saying that in order to make a standard medieval bolt of cloth, which would be enough to make about, um, by my estimates, um, about 60 sort of garments, if you're thinking of like knee length tunics, for instance. So in order to make enough fabric for that from the raw wool, it would take 30 people approximately five weeks.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: So I said bolt of cloth. This was um, specified as a piece of cloth measuring 42 by 4 L's. So I really like I really like that as a, a unit of measurement. And I was reading about other medieval units I'm of off measurement. To,
0: I'm off to get some l's. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's what I say
0: every day before I go to work.
1: Yeah. Um, so some other these are mostly dis- units of distance. Um, you might have heard of a barley corn and a poppy seed, which are like the medieval sort of centimeter and millimeter.
0: I have not.
1: Okay. Well, there's a twip. <laughs> yes. Um, there was a, there's a, a distance, this is still used, a lot of these are actually still used in various contexts, um, a furlong might be something you've heard of, that's officially the distance a plow team can plow without stopping for rest.
0: Wow, so a variable, fantastic. Yes, um,
1: (laughs) and then you also have a unit of measurement, this is, I think, post-medieval, but I really liked it, so I'm including it anyways, it's called Gunter's Chain, (laughs) And it's a distance... Gunter! B- it's a distance based on a chain made by a guy named Gunter. <laughs> it was just a guy named Gunter who was like, we need a standardized unit of measurement, so he made a chain.
0: I'll, if, if nobody else is going to fucking do it, I'll do it myself.
1: Yeah, exactly. Here you go,
0: Here's my chain, Gunter's chain. Yep,
1: yeah. and then you have Gunter's links, which are the length of one link in each of these chains, um, which, yeah, is, I think really really wonderful. I need
0: to know everything about this man. I know. I know. <laughs>
1: Gunter. Uh, I think it was English, actually. Um, but anyway, Are you,
0: you going to make me a long chain? And we're going to use it for measuring sheeps.
1: Exactly.
0: I've been listening to a lot of worzles lately.
1: Yeah, I know. I've been there. <laughs> um,
0: Don't pretend you haven't enjoyed it.
1: So anyways, um, if any of these steps are messed up, by the way, in making this fabric then the final value of the fabric is severely impacted. So you really want people doing each of these things who know what they're doing and can also do it quickly and reliably. You might be asking yourself, if all of that manual labor is involved in producing a comparatively small amount of fabric, right, then how is it that the people who are at the top of this operation controlling it are making healthy profits while also making sure that everyone else is being fairly compensated for their time and their skills? Well,
0: that's the neat part. You don't do the last bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, a really important thing to understand about... The, uh, about the way that the wool trade work is, as Olivia mentioned, there are lots of different people involved in this process. And by the way, there's even more of a profit incentive because until really the 13th century that production line is not vertically integrated. So it's a bunch of middlemen, all of whom have to make themselves a profit, which means that the actual hard labor being done by, uh, by, by, the, by the workers has to be as cheap as possible. Now, in the Middle Ages, if you were an artisan, a skilled worker, basically, and I put I use that term advisedly, you were more likely than not a member of a guild. And Florence, being the center of what passed for industry in the Middle Ages, had a lot of fucking guilds. The largest of which was the Arte de Lana, the wool guild, yes. imaginatively named.
1: So you might be thinking at this point, oh... All of these people who work in the wool industry must have been in this wool guild. Incorrect. Almost none of them did. <laughs> so, um, I was reading that, I don't know the exact date on this, but in medieval Florence, of around 14,000 people involved in the wool industry. Actually, let's make this a game. Aaron, do you know how many of those people were eligible for um, membership in the wool guild?
0: I have read those notes, but I forgot. I'm going to say 400.
1: 200. 200. So, yeah. So most of the people that are in this industry are shut out from the guilds.
0: And the guilds are an incredibly important part of industrial relations in the Middle Ages. It's a combination of... It's basically... It's where you collectively bargain to set wages. It's where you will learn your trade in many cases because, you know, you learn from from other guildsmen. Mm
1: -hmm. These are the people who are often deciding who was allowed to practice this trade in the first yeah. place? It's
0: a mix be- it's basically a mix between a a trade union, a professional association, a technical college and the mob. Yes. And in Florence, membership of a guild was even more important than in the rest of Europe because Florence from 1115 uh, onwards was what historians call a guild republic. So your political rights were determined by whether or not you were a member of a recognized guild. To take a step back and explain how you get there, basically, pre-1115, Florence is ruled by the Podesta, who is an aristocratic papal appointee. Anyway, there's a bit of a power vacuum after one of them dies. And uh, basically, the guilds, who, whilst relatively small in number, do represent the richest people in Florence say, well, there's a bit of a power vacuum here, we could stage a coup. And so, in the absence of the Podesta, they se- they set up a new constitution, basically, with a new system of government. And it's, it's a bafflingly weird system of government to a modern uh, listener. So, for example, the way that it worked is the executive was uh, comprised of the gonfalonieri di giustizia, who was the standard-bearer of justice, who was like the head of government, and nine signori, who were basically like the cabinet. And those people were elected by lottery every two
1: months. (laughs) That's quite a turnover rate, isn't it?
0: Imagine just for a second, please, if you will, if, never mind your own country, the prime minister changed every two months and was just a random guy. From your town, even if it was in your city, if yeah. the mayor was elected every two months, that and would it, be nuts. And it could be your idiot cousin. Oh no!
1: <laughs> oh, that's a sad thought.
0: And in, in order to be in that lottery, you had to, as a bare minimum, be a member of a guild. And I should say, also say that the guilds had two legislative chambers as well as part of this constitution, where they had to approve all legislation that was passed in the commune.
1: Mass, yeah, madness. Um, and so, if, so, so the people that were doing the carding and the spinning and the cleaning and the weaving of these fabrics of the wool were not allowed in the guild. So who? No. So who was?
0: I mean, basically, like the the very sort of the
1: the merchants, often. the merchants,
0: the sort of the upper end of the production chain, so the people who are doing the very sort of fine work, but not your industrial workers, the people who are like yes. working in. Not, not your builders, not your wool carters, yes. not your butchers.
1: Maybe your dyers.
0: Wait, yeah, the dyers do have their own guild. Yes. And they're very militant.
1: <laughs> yes, well, you would be too if you knew how tricky it was to get a decent dye out of a plant.
0: And dying, by the way, smelled fucking terrible.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it needed all sorts of, like, weird chemicals and... I mean, it still does, to be honest. Uh, so
0: so you would be going a little bit insane.
1: Def- it was like a real Mad Hatter scenario.
0: So here's a fun fact for you, by the way. I mentioned that it's not vertically integrated uh, until the 14th century. That does change yeah. in an event that historians call the Underwear Revolution. Yes! Basically, um, what happens is... Uh, basically... There are advances in spinning that allow you to spin a much finer cloth, and suddenly people are like, that would feel really nice against my so-and-so. Stop!
2: Are you okay? Yeah.
1: I sell
0: underwear becomes much more pop- becomes much more popular as a luxury good. I
1: wanna put this on my weed. Are you okay? Yeah. I wanna put this on my Vegeta.
0: Sorry. Oh dear. <laughs> and so that changes the um, that changes the work that goes into the production of woolen garments, which means that it's an opportunity for the people at the top to renegotiate the economic relationships that uh, produce this wool. And so what you see is a much more vertically integrated system where people are working more and more for buses rather than being independent contractors who come in and sell their wool to the next guy in the supply chain, which allows people to make much more money at the top, and it puts the people who are at the bottom in a much more precarious position, because they no longer have an ability to negotiate.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's to give a bit of cultural background as well, that's maybe not important for understanding each individual event, but is maybe important for understanding... Um, you know some of the ubiquity, but also disenfranchisement of wool workers is that mm-hmm. wool was not wool and spinning were not necessarily looked upon as sort of fine arts or high arts or skilled labor in the Middle Ages, and so we we get a lot of depictions typically of women spinning, and so there's a conception definitely that spinning was more of um, a woman's task. This isn't necessarily the case, so there were, of course, a lot of men involved in commercial spinning and commercial wool production. We're gonna
0: meet some of them in a bit.
1: Yes, um, but a lot of these jobs, like carding and spinning, and even weaving to an extent, although weaving was a little bit more, you know, highbrow, um, they were, they were things that people often did as a kind of piece work. There was, you know, a, a bit of a, a gig economy in a lot of places, <laughs> to be honest. No, it's
0: a really good analogy.
1: Where where people, um, people wouldn't necessarily be employed full-time as weavers or spinners, but it could be something that you did, for instance, on the side to make a bit of money. Of course, this was less the case in Florence, um, where there was a more robust trade, but... The idea of the people who make the garments that you wear and make the fabric that you wear, um, despite being an important part you know of people's of, of people's life, even people at the very top of the economic chain. And yet these people being sort of completely disenfranchised um, is sort of a, a product to an extent of how we view this type of labor and how this type of labor, was viewed I should you know say in the past tense more but I think it's also worth pointing out that like the the status of garment workers has not necessarily changed significantly no. if no. you imagine if you've bought a new piece of clothing in the past you know 20 years if you imagine who made that and how they were compensated you know as much as I think it can be easy to be like oh my gosh how are these you know People are getting taken advantage of like this in Florence. Well,
0: so the thing, the, the important thing about a major city like Florence in this period is that it doesn't have a self-sustaining population. Um, cities don't. Cities are fucking horrible for disease, as anybody who's taken the London Underground will. Oh god. Will will understand. Even uh, in
1: the pre-bedbug era. Even in the
0: pre-bedbug era. I mean, by the time this goes out, we could have been eaten by bedbugs. I don't know. Anyway. Um, So cities like Florence sustained their population through constant migration from the rural parts of its immediate environs into the city. Who these people were, in the bluntest possible terms, rural people who were being displaced and pulled by the economic center of gravity more and more into this black hole, essentially, that will chew you up and spit you out. It's not a good situation to be in. The pay is shit. The hours are incredibly long, 14 hours a day a lot of the time. Jesus. Yeah, no, it's, it's, but unfortunately, that's where the money is. And by the way, this is something that gets replicated all over the world, um, with the, with the, the, when industrialization really starts to pick up pace, even that life is, in many ways, easier and more convenient than... Potentially, you know, getting impaled by a spike on a farm and dying in the middle of
1: nowhere. Yeah, or just starving to death because your crops fails, which is something that, you know, happened all the way up, even, you know, in Europe, all the way up to the the 19th and the 20th century. So in Florence, in the Middle Ages, you saw this confluence of all of these different people who were um, industrial workers, in a sense, and while there were other big cities in the Middle Ages, of course, it was, I think, Florence very unique for having this very large concentration of industrial workers.
0: Mm. And an industri- and a concentration of industrial workers leads to a second thing, which is the concentration of capital. We talked in the Doritos episode about how if you make your money, your living from trade, you're going to have more liquid assets, more money floating around um, than somebody who sort of su- subsists, Through agriculture because you know you sell stuff you buy you're buying stuff and selling stuff and that there's many more cash transactions in that process than there is in an in a purely agricultural economy so what you see in Florence is a gradual accumulation of capital people and families in particular these big they're called tower families because here's a fun fact about Florence Uh, the aristocratic families of Florence they lived in these towers all the whole family would live in the same tower, and uh, every member of the family owned shares in that tower. And to sell the shares, you needed uh, the unanimous consent of all other members of the family. So you could not—you literally could not leave oh, unless your yeah. parents said so. Which I mean. There's a joke about Italians that I'm choosing not to make. Well yeah,
1: especially in light of that court case, right? That was in the news.
0: Woman evicts her forty and forty-two-year-old sons.
1: Yeah, because they were employed but didn't pay rent. Didn't, didn't do any housework. This was in Italy. Oh
0: dear.
2: So there's so there's
0: all this money floating around in Florence, and the Florentine elite are getting very rich. But there's another thing going on as well, which is that as this process is happening in Florence, Florence is the sharp end of this process. It's it's on the cutting edge, but it's happening in lots of other places as well. The 10th to the 14th centuries in Italy sees what historians call the commercial revolution, a period of increased international trade um, centered on Italy. So rivals to Florence, like Venice and Genoa, get fabulously rich by controlling trade in the Mediterranean. The Genoese take the, the western half, and as we've talked about before, the Venetians take the eastern half. And Florence is stuck in the middle with no seaport. So Florence has to find a way to compete with these other cities and project its influence in another way. And the Florentines, instead of going east or west, they go north. They go it in a very different way than everybody else. They do banking. These great families like uh, the Albizzi and the Strozzi and, yes, the Medici, if you were wondering, if you, wanted to, if you were uh, waiting to cross that one off your medieval Florence bingo card, congratulations. Yes. I think that's a world record. We've got, Anyone's gone talking about medieval Florence without talking about the Medici family. So all these great families, they set up these vast banking empires that have branches in cities all across Europe, and they are crucial in the financial markets. They are who you go to if you want to fight a war. And they a lot of the time, they do those banking transactions in their own currency. The gold florin.
1: Yeah, so after the fall of Rome, and the subsequent disruption of trade, gold became a lot harder to get, and gold coins for a very long time stopped being minted.
0: Well, there's fewer of them. There was fewer of
1: them. There, there was fewer of them um, and they were not widely circulated until Florence and its Florin.
0: Yeah, they basically got access to a whole bunch of uh, mines in Hungary, and they started minting these gold coins. And suddenly, those are being used in transactions all across the continent. And
1: Hungarians saw them and were like, "Oh, we want to do that too. Let's change the name <laughs> a little bit. <laughs>
0: let's change two letters.
1: Okay, let's call it the fu- the flor, the for the florin, the forint.
0: And that's how you get the Hungarian forint, everybody. Fun fact. Fun facts. That's what we do here. And so in in some ways, the answer to why people would be making jokes about Florentines across Italy is because there was a good chance if you were an educated sort of person in business, you would probably have met Florentines, have done business with them, and probably resent them because nobody likes their bank.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah.
0: So sticking it to the Florentines.
1: Yeah, it's like if Lloyd's Bank... Um, you know, <laughs> don't name a specific bank. RBS. Um, no,
0: no, cut this. <laughs> it's like if unnamed bank, <laughs> who I don't want to get on the wrong side of.
1: Um, and um, what's another bank? And Santander were just like five guys who were all friends with each other, you know? You would start to resent the place that had, that had you know... Brought those guys forth into into the world.
0: Probably the most well known, though, and the most influential of these great banking families was, as I've mentioned before, the Medici. Now the Medici, and I'm going to pronounce it every which way over the course of this episode because that way I can't be wrong. At the start of the at the start of the um, 15th century, the Medici are, in many ways, a fairly standard Italian banking dynasty until the head of that family. Giovanni di Medici makes a very important choice. He chooses to finance the Pope's return from Avignon to uh, to Rome, where the Pope had been living for like almost has almost a century because of aforementioned political strife. And in doing so, he made a very very good bet because in exchange, once the Pope had returned to Rome, he gave the Medici very expensive contracts to manage all of the tax income that the, um, that the papacy was in charge of, which meant that the Medici got very, very, very wealthy, and their bank got enormously large. Now, meanwhile, back in Florence, Florence's constant conflicts and wars with other Italian powers and with, you know, other factions were bankrupting the state. And it was getting more and more politically impractical to add new taxes to pay for these for these wars. So the so the government in Florence became more and more dependent on these uh, the, these great banks. In many ways, you know, the, the Florentine Republic had sort of raised and reared these institutions, and now sort of comes begging to uh, to to these multinational corporations to finance their their activities. Completely unlike the political economy of the modern world, of course. Yes, that this never that happens. No. Yeah. Now that's all right, actually, for the Florentines, as long as the banking sector doesn't get too consolidated. But hypothetically, if one bank were to become extremely large and powerful and provide the majority of the loans, they would be able to. They would basically have the Florent, the entire Florentine government over their knee, which is exactly <laughs> what happened <laughs> by f- the 1430s. of all the loans that uh, the the Florentine government are taking out is with the Bank of the Medici. And what that allows the Medici to do is to control the politics of Florence. So they start building patronage networks across the city. They start buying off uh, officials. They start influencing what laws get passed. And slowly but surely, informally, despite very rarely holding public office, the Medici family come to be the most the the unofficial rulers of florence all the important decisions are no longer being made in the palace of the signoria they are now being made at the medici house and so this massive accumulation of capital in the hands of the medici specifically and the florentine bankers more generally had a huge impact on the cultural explosion that we call the uh, we, we have come to call the Renaissance. So the Medici in particular and the other bankers as well were huge patrons of public art and public discourse and um, culture in general. So for example um, when the uh, Neoplatonist scholars want to set up the Florentine Academy modeled on the original Academy of Aristotle it's the Cheese who pay for it.
1: Wow. So nice of them to do that out of the goodness of their hearts. Out of hearts. the goodness
0: of their hearts. They, they, the Medici's, uh I would say, fund the careers of most of the Ninja Turtles.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they live about uh, Baxter Splinter? I mean, he's living in a sewer.
0: Yeah, well... Master, Master Splinter has different political affiliations. Yeah. I, feel, I always thought that Master Splinter would be with the chompy.
1: Yeah, fair. He was a hardcore communist. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He's disenfranchised. He was a rat. Yeah. A oh. communist, a Marxist rat.
0: So, why were they spending all this money on art? Well, patronage of public art, specifically, can be understood as a form of what's called conspicuous consumption. That's where spending habits are intended as a signal to your peers that you got the fucking dough. And it's very important to understand that, as we've talked about, the economic world of Florence is incredibly competitive. There's always a chance that one of your competitors will strike a better deal with one of the sunburned Dutchmen who are bringing your wool than you do. I just hate that. And undercut your business model. So everybody needs to be projecting constantly.
1: Well, it's not that hard... To, I mean, to imagine, I live in sort of semi-suburban London. I can't step outside of my house without almost getting hit by someone in a Range Rover. <laughs> An expensive, illogical... A
0: Chelsea tractor or a white Range Rover. that's yeah. the, Those are the worst ones.
1: Exactly. A car... And it's in America. It's probably the same, but it's a massive Ford. Except they're fifty percent bigger. Fucking lifted pickup truck with like no bed and a cab <laughs> that can fit a large American suburban family. And no one is using these cars for their original purpose. It can
0: fit your fat children in the back, in the bed, and nothing else.
1: Exactly. But everyone has to know you're rich.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And uh, so commissioning public art is a way to do that because everybody will see, well, you know, de Medici must be a wealthy man because his name and his coat of arms are up there in the fucking domo. Yep. And also, I should say, commissioning works for the church is particularly useful because that will shorten your time in purgatory. So it's a double whammy of self-interest. So, this following declaration goes out to all the unbearable statue heads on Twitter who I have to look at every goddamn day. The great men of the Renaissance were not commissioning art because they had an intuitive understanding of the beauty of nature and God's creation or whatever. They were in a dick-measuring competition.
1: And if that sounds overly cynical, as I'm sure a lot of the statue heads would say... That's because it's true.
0: Well, don't trust me. Take uh, Richard Goldthwaite, who is... I know this is an appeal to authority, but we're running out of time, so I have to make this anyway. Richard Goldthwaite, probably one of the most influential of any of this whole cast of Florentinists that that I mentioned at the start of this show, who says, For affluent artistic patrons in Renaissance Italy, to quote, Spending money on art expressed their sense of what constituted noble status. Their spending habits arose from what is perhaps the universal desire of the rich to utilize their wealth to set themselves apart from the common people.
1: Was that Billy Crystal?
0: And it's an important to note these men were, th- these rich men were new men. They couldn't lean on their aristocratic connections. A lot of them were just guys who'd struck it rich, like the Medici's. They weren't knights for the most part. And so, essentially, they had even more of a reason to commission art specifically. Because that shows that you're cultured. Before we go on, I just need to say, like, so so much of uh, revisionist historiography is just written off as, oh, you are one of the fun police? Yeah. Like, you can still like this art. A lot of it is still fantastic and yep. is incredibly path-breaking. But you have to acknowledge the engine that uh, that sort of is powering it, is the exploitation of working people.
1: Yes. Specifically to make the rich people look better amongst yeah. their peers and make themselves more money.
0: The reason why the Florentines were the pathbreakers in the Renaissance is because they were the first people to build a capitalist economy. Uh...
1: As we've alluded to before, there you can't have profit and wealth at this scale without someone on the bottom getting screwed over.
0: Let's talk so let's talk about the people on the bottom.
1: Yes, we've 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 set the scene, we've established this sort of agglomeration of different industries and guilds that funneled a lot of money towards the top and gave a group of people a very vested interest in their continued ability to profit off of the banking system and off of these different industries, and perhaps less consideration for the people who are actually making this possible with their labor.
0: Because it, as I talked about before, it's a shit situation to be in. You're not making an awful lot of money if you're a if you're a wall carter in Florence. You have no political rights because you can't join a guild, and you also can't bargain collectively, and increasingly your wages are being set by increasingly bureaucratic, centralized systems which screw you over even more. Happily, however, people didn't take that lying down. In 1378, uh, an event known as the Tumulto di Chompi, the revolt of the Ciompi, the revolt of the wool carters, occurred. Now, this was as part of, I should say, a wider set of risings across Europe. What Tyler? For example, and the peasants' revolt in England being a sort of sibling of this.
1: I actually was reading about one period in Swedish history when, in ninety years, I think there were thirteen peasant revolts. Um, so yeah, peasants were not happy with the with the with the king in Sweden at that time. No. They? And speaking of England, um, yeah, it's important to mention that like this is not specific to Florence, although it's particularly acute in Florence. Because what are the English people doing? Well, they're raising and shearing the sheep, and around the same time, we're seeing an increase in something called enclosure, where the people before the Norman Conquest, before 1066, people basically, Anglo-Saxon land law specified that it was, um, specified that land ownership was mostly based on precedent. So there was a lot of common land, very little ownership, very hard to deprive someone of their land, And basically, everyone was going, oh, me and this guy and this other guy have been letting our sheep graze on this land forever, so that's our right. And it just carries on. (laughs) And it just carries on like that. And then the Normans showed up and said, well, actually, you guys ever heard of a little thing called taxes and ownership? (laughs) And over the course, around the same time, actually, Florence was beginning to... um, shift away from buying English wool because mm-hmm. English wool was getting really stupidly expensive. One of the reasons for that was because um, people were having their land taken away from them yeah. and were being forced to pay extortionate rents. And,
0: and also, there is an attempt especially in the closing periods of the Middle Ages to develop a domestic um, sort of English wool industry. So starting to do some of those the 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 do some of the hard work of sort of producing the woolen garments in-house, basically, which screws Florence even more and will eventually doom them to irrelevance by the by the sort of end of the 17th century. But coming back to the chompy, so amidst you know amidst industrial decline, amidst the aftermath of the Black Death, amidst um, wider sort of poor harvests across Europe, uh, the working classes, and I use that term, pretty much in the modern sense, because I think we've established that there was, a, there was what we would now consider to be an urban working class in Florence in this period, start organizing and they start rebelling. And in 1378, they do rise up and they win. A guy called Michele de' Alando leads a workers' revolt which overthrows the signoria Michele Lando, by the way is a fantastically ambiguous character. We don't know anything about his life before um before the re- revolution because he was an ordinary guy. He was a wool carter who was married to a butcher and he was uh and he he was just a foreman in his local workshop.
1: God, I wish I had a hot Italian butcher wife.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you need to stop. Okay, you're a- you're 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 getting a bit feral today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Delanda, he's a he's a wool carter and a former soldier and a foreman, and the workers' revolt succeeds and he gets elected as the gonfalonieri. And he once he and he installs his own signoria and starts passing laws to recognize the workers' guild. He sets up a guild for workers, which is a guild, unlike the other guilds, is a guild of class, not of occupation, which is incredibly interesting because that is not replicated anywhere else in in Europe. Um, And so that creation of that guild enfranchises more people probably than have been able to participate in politics for more than than a thousand years in Italy. And it all goes well for about 40 days. (laughs) He passes all this hugely consequential um, legislation, but he eventually is caught in this awful bind that I think a lot of revolutionary governments end up in where the elite, who have not gone away, they've been deposed but they're still very much in the city, are putting enormous pressure on him to compromise. Simultaneously though, he's also under pressure from the radicals uh, in the, in the worker, among the workers for him to go further, to basically keep sticking it to the elite. And Delando makes a gamble where he basically sides with the elites and uh, crushes a, rev- a worker's revolt um, and that they, they, he sort of his his government is left to sort of tr- trail alone for another four years, but never really achieves anything else after that. And then eventually he's overthrown, and uh, and ha- is goes into exile in uh, thirteen eighty two. Fun fact about uh fun fact about Michele de Lando is that he walked around barefoot in the Signoria Palace, just like so powerful.
2: Then I will. Turn.
0: This has huge sort of ramifications for culture in Florence. This this traumatizes the Florentine elites, for example. So it, they become they they basically lock arms and become incredibly resistant to workers' demands. There's a great quote from the Bishop of Florence, who was installed after the the defeat of the Ciampi government, which is you know if you want stability, you need to keep Florentines hungry for bread. If people are starving, they can't politically organized. Um, It's something that people in Florence are thinking about for well over a hundred years afterwards. One of the people who's writing about uh, the the Chompe revolt is Machiavelli, um, who surprisingly is quite, I think, pro chompe in the sort of subtext of what he says, because it's very hard to trust any of the sources from around the Ciompe revolt. Because all of them are incredibly pro-elite. This is some, this is a huge challenge that, like, scholarship is still dealing with. It's very hard to figure out what people what things actually mean. But Machiavelli, and I should stress, this is writing hundred years afterwards. This is not based on anything. In one of his one of his books, he writes about he he writes a speech basically from the perspective of a chumpy leader that I think gives voice to ordinary people in a way that we very, very, very rarely get to, um, get to hear about in the Middle Ages, because, you know, their shit just didn't survive. So, I'm going to read some, two quick excerpts from this Excellent. speech. Do not let their antiquity of blood dismay you, for all men, having had the same beginning, are equally ancient, and have been made by nature in one mode. Strip all of us naked, and you will see that we are all alike, Dresses in their clothes and them in ours, and without a doubt we shall appear noble, and they ignoble, for only poverty and riches make us unequal.
1: Ah, that's so based.
0: I know you'd like this.
1: Ah, he's based in red pills, I knew it.
0: He goes on to say, We ought not to take conscience into account, for where there is, as with us, fear of hunger and prison, there cannot and should not be fear of hell. But if you will take note of the mode of proceeding of men, you will see that all those who come to great riches and great power have obtained them either by fraud or by force. And afterwards, to hide the ugliness of acquisition, they make it decent by applying the false title of earnings to things they have usurped by by deceit or by violence. And those who, out of either little prudence or too much foolishness, shun these modes, always suffocate in servitude or poverty. For faithful servants are always servants, and good men are always poor. Wow. Now again, I have to stress, that is literature. That's not a quote. Yeah. But I think that even... Sure. Even if we place it in the fifteenth century context when Machiavelli's writing, rather than the fourteenth century context, it's still an incredibly radical speech.
1: Yeah, be radical today to a lot of people. Oh
0: hell yeah! So there, there you go. Not only does the um, does does the development of capitalism in Florence fuel this blossoming of you know of artistic achievement, but it also produces many of the dynamics of class relationships that we are still living with today.
2: Wow. Um,
1: so yeah, so there were so many different social and political and economic factors, as we've said, that all collided at warp speed with each other in medieval Florence and led to this really interesting city kind of blossoming, um, rising very quickly and then falling sort of meteorically. Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, it blazed the path for the modern world both in the good ways and the catastrophically uh, bad ways.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but because the reach of Florence was so, so extensive, it wasn't limited like other cities to um, places that were reachable by sea, um, or places that shared, you know, cultural or linguistic links. It was pretty ubiquitous in Europe and because of a lot of these people that were rising to power and exploiting other people so they could keep a hold on that power and also, um, just because of all of these insane events that were going on, um, in Florence around this time you can imagine why Florence and Florentines would be on people's minds and might be living rent
0: free in people's heads and
1: might be the people you would want to make jokes about although of course I think anyone who's from somewhere has made a joke about someone who's from the region next door you know? <laughs> so,
0: of course they're well, are... I'm sure they still make jokes about Florentines in like
1: Oh, definitely. Turin. yeah exactly so, so even though of course there are, you know, political and cultural factors. It'll always be funny to be like, "Oh yeah, people from similar town to me an hour away are so stupid. It's just uh, It's just comedy gold. It's like mantraine. Yes, definitely.
2: I <laughs> love.
1: Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed this jaunt through medieval Florence and...
0: Whistle-stop tour. There's so... We, we've barely scratched this. Earth. I didn't even get to talk
1: about the bonfire or the vanities, not the movie. <laughs> there will be time. Um, One day. And we also want to issue a hearty thank you to all of our listeners for sticking with us until episode 10 of the podcast for all of your kind, kind comments. Um, and your reviews and your constructive feedback about our audio quality which has <laughs> hopefully improved dramatically <laughs> um i've learned a lot about audio editing um so yeah um, but seriously thank you guys so much it's been so so much fun working on this podcast so far and we love all of you guys and we're so excited to make some more podcast for you
0: yeah i mean it's been a it's been a we rarely get so real on the show but it's been a very, very surreal experience, and you know I wouldn't be putting, uh, putting putting the hours in that I do to make this show if I wasn't doing it for the if if if, if, if the the love that you have all shown uh, for this wasn't sort of my, wasn't the motivation. Yeah. Because God knows it's not making me money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, as always, we are always very very thankful if you drop us a five star review leave us a comment put something in the Spotify feedback box and maybe if it catches our eye we will read it out on the podcast as Aaron is about to do.
0: Yeah so we got a lot of comments on the uh, on the um, on the, on the vampires episode. Happy Halloween by the way um, and we got this very spooky message. Um, from a listener I was listening on my bike at night under heavy rain when you said we had to listen in the dark nothing just thought it was cool it was cool (laughs) it was cool just to hear about that
1: Um, by the way um, I as some of you know I have a merch shop where I sell like tote bags and stickers and stuff and I just wanted to say whichever one of you actually I know know who it is (laughs) Whoever left, the person that left the comment on their order in the notes box that said, I'm going to have sex on top of this tote bag and there's nothing you can do to stop me. First of all, you're (laughs) unhinged. Second of all, why would you say that to someone after giving them your address? I know where you live. I'm going to come for you. No, 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 not that. (laughs) Ah, I'm going to hurt you. (laughs)
0: She's not going to do that, okay? I'm you you're not going to hurt anyone. No. Um in more important news, Olivia, by the time you are listening to this, Olivia's book will have come out.
1: Yes, it's coming out on November 2nd, so unless one of us gets hit by lightning while editing this podcast, it will have come out yesterday. Um Wow. So, thank you so much to everyone who's pre-ordered the book, um, it's seen a lot of success so far, it was the book of the month, uh, one of the books of the month, um, in August on bookshop.org, and it's been in the Amazon charts recently, and it's not even out yet, so, it's so amazing to see, and, um, I'm just so, so grateful to everyone that's been so supportive, and so excited for it, and has pre-ordered it already, um, and yeah, you can buy it now. It's out now. So, if you or someone else that you know wants a cheeky, humorous, and interactive guide to the medieval worlds, then you know where to look.
0: Imagine this podcast, but better.
1: No, <laughs> wrong. And I think that's about it for today.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, so you can always find you can always find Olivia at at Weird Medieval everywhere. Mm-hmm,
1: exactly.
0: Uh, I am at Aaron. P Tappers on Twitter and at just at Aaron on Blue Sky because yes. I got in there so quick
1: <laughs> so good and my personal Twitter is at Olivia underscore underscore M-S and on that wonderful note I think it's time for us to finish drinking our Bira Moretti's and eat some spaghetti and think about medieval Florence Mamma Mia Here we go again ha <laughs> ha back to my ancestral heartland of Tuscany to discover what made it so horrible. That my ancestors moved to the Bronx in 1352. Your great great
0: great 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 keep going. Great, almost there. Great 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 great
1: great great cousin. Yes, yes. My great times a thousand grandfather's second cousin's former roommate moved to the Bronx in 1352.